0: Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to
1: supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help. From fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. How's it going? Is that, that's the second time
3: it's gone off. They never got home, they never got
2: home, they never got home, those guys. Those, those and I said, I want to win the
4: league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you?
0: Yes. Good
4: luck.
2: So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever.
1: After Kerry won the 2007 All-Ireland Final against Cork, Paul Galvin made the point that the last 100 years of Kerry football was riding on that match. The idea of losing the Cork in an All-Ireland Final was something he couldn't countenance. So now, aside from putting an almighty amount of pressure on yourself there, I did think it was an interesting comment at the time, and I was reminded of that idea of tradition last weekend with the Cork hurlers. Beating Dublin. James O'Connor was making the point in his Sunday independent preview that Cork had to guard against complacency. I'm paraphrasing somewhat, but even though the Dubs were the ones being tipped up in most places, the Cork Hurlers were going into Croke Park and they would always feel traditionally that they're never going to lose to Dublin. Jamesy yeah. made the point that, look, Galway, Kilkenny, while they would never say it and maybe didn't think it consciously, probably also went into their matches with a little element of, oh yeah, sure, the Dublin are great and all that, but we will beat them. Uh, kind of interesting, because I, I would tend to think that that theory is nonsense some of the time, but there's just too much evidence that sometimes it does actually make a difference.
5: Yeah, I just kind of think that uh, maybe players don't fall into that trap as uh, as much, like they, in, a, in a literal sense, in that they would be, ah, oh, like, listen, it's Dublin, you know? But I think that everyone they meet Thinks like that, and that that would have to have had some sort of impact. If you're walking down the street in Cork and you meet
1: an all, one of the guys that won a three in a row in the 1970s, we well, don't even have to walk down the street. The guys who are your manager and your selectors yeah. have all beaten Dublin routinely during their careers and won all Ireland. I
5: presume they aren't saying
1: to you, "Yeah, ah, it's only Dublin." But.
5: Yeah, and again, it's like it's at a nearly subconscious level. Yeah. But everyone is thinking, you know, we're we're Cork. You know, like we just we don't lose to Dublin. We can't lose to Dublin, and. I think the players would be a lot more tuned into, right, we've played these guys in the league, we've played them at minor, played them at 21, whatever. We know these guys are good hurlers. But then, I, like, it's small little percentages that we're talking about, uh, particularly in this year's championship, where there have been no blowout victories, really. And you're talking about the tiniest percentages that are maybe changing games. And we'll talk in a few minutes about there were a load of those kind of, like, little turning point moments in, in the Dublin court game. You're talking about tiny percentages. And in a situation like that, can that actually damage you? The fact that all of your fans think we're cork.
2: But you see, not this is the point. It
1: didn't damage them at all. In fact, if anything, if there's anything to be gleaned from this conversation, if it's that maybe it enhanced their chances well, of Well, it's
2: like I always say ghosts don't win football matches. You do always say that. It's Have true. you ever seen a ghost kick a point? Now, no. But, but that's not to say that they can't influence the outcome. Mm hmm. Because if you've got, uh, I mean, the tradition, the tradition of carry football, say in the case Paul Galvin mentioned, is, is of no use to the carry team when they're actually out there on the field. It's not really going to do anything for them unless, unless the manager has been able to flick a little switch in the heads of his players that makes them aware that they are out there with all those ghosts also on their side. I'm not just saying this is some, this is not just some crazy talk. Uh, you
1: mean in some sort of a blanket defence?
2: No. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Get three hundred men behind the ball. Yeah, it's, or three hundred ghosts at 300. least. What
2: I'm saying is that uh, like is that plan. I think that I think an appeal to history, an appeal to tradition, can actually help to strengthen the the team ethic, by, by making you aware that the team isn't even just the 1400 guys in the field, but there's. Countless generations that have gone before you, and you better not let them down. And I'm thinking here of somebody who does certainly use that as a motivational tactic is Alex Ferguson. And you remember what he said in his uh, in his speech at Old Trafford at the end of his, you know, when he was retiring. You know, never forget what you are. You You know, this is a bigger thing than you. the The idea that what you serve, it's not just you. It's a bigger institution. It's a bigger tradition. It goes back years. Michael Owen did an interview um, last week. With Henry Winter, where he talked about this, he said the thing. The reason I really wanted to join Man United was I just wanted to hear what Ferguson's team talks were like. And Jamie Carragher rung him up and said, "Listen, uh, before like his first match, you know, just let us know what he what he says. You know, what does, he, does he shout? Does he, you know, <laughs> just just let us know exactly what he said." And and Owen talked about one particular uh, time when they played Chelsea in the Champions League. Remember they went down to Stamford Bridge? I think they won. They won. Three, they won anyway. Ryan Giggs a particularly good game, um, and that's all Ferguson talked about. You know, how, how hard he'd worked to get where he was, how hard everyone in the room had worked. You know, talking about his upbringing, talking about the history of the club. And according to Owen, they went out there ready to kill Chelsea. And I suppose that does make a difference. Well, certainly Alex Ferguson, after how many years of experience, thought it did. So if it's manipulated skillfully by a manager, it can work. In itself, it doesn't work. It has to be switched on. But maybe it does make a difference. Yeah,
1: in fairness, Jimmy Barry Murphy's the best man in the country, or certainly in the county mm-hmm. of Cork, to be able to do something like that. Uh, if we learn anything from the Gulf, it's do not, do not troll Lee Westwood on, t- on Twitter. No. Or well, do, because I suppose the whole point <laughs> of it is you. you're getting a
5: reaction. Well, yeah, maybe pick your time, you know. <laughs> if it's around 3 a.m. Lee Westwood time, the <laughs> night he's shot a, 60, a 76 on the last day of a major, maybe maybe that is
1: a
2: good time it to t- For Lee people Lee who aren't
1: aware of can we even give, is it possible to edit enough stuff out to give a flavor of what Lee Westwood was? Well, wearing? I
2: guess, the, I think the first one of these pops up. Our time about eight o five in the morning. Yep, yeah. should make it. I don't know what, what time New York time
5: three a.m. Rochester time. Uh,
2: so Lee Westwood, you know, look at anyone. Anyone can, can look at this for themselves online. Doesn't care what the haters say. That's life. Uh, some people will always be a bit better and work out. Oh, you've gone quiet now, <laughs> says Westwood, addressing the trolls. Ten minutes later, Sados, what's wrong? Don't like it back, you failures. <laughs> then, uh, you know, almost immediately. Oh, yeah, you're all quiet now, aren't you? Come on, bring it on, big boys. Yeah, I thought not. Then uh, 20 minutes after that, um, someone says, put the phone down, Westy, before it gets out of hand. I'll swap my career for yours. No, why should I? Says uh, Westy. 20 minutes after that. Come on, trolls. Surely I've not worn you out. Cluck, cluck, cluck. Uh, That's
5: a chicken noise there, just in case anyone uh, you didn't know, get and then, the reference.
2: So after after uh, having a go at everyone, you know, oh, the haters have gone quiet, didn't like it, back at them, and so on and so forth. Um, some eight hours later, mm. sincere apologies to my sponsors and true followers for my earlier comments. It was out of order and out of character, Westy. So I'm just trying to picture the scene that happened around... Um, Getting Four PM our time, 11 AM 11 New York time. We've all been we've all been through that moment down. That sort of. You know, maybe so, some uh, days I, you feel. Less did I ready say to
5: something to my caddy last night? Why, why do I feel so bad? I, why is, what's that nagging feeling in my head? No, it's maybe my a, one million. Phone, Twitter why is
2: the phone in my hotel room ringing constantly? That's yeah. the noise that's woke me up. What's going on? Look at my actual phone. There's twenty-seven missed calls in it. There's seventy-six text it messages. To be nearly
5: all of my sponsors ringing me this early in the morning. What could, what could that check be? Through, uh, check through the text messages. No, no, no text texts. Photograph. Oh, just. Hmm. Me hanging out, having a few beers. Oh, that, that's actually quite a nice photograph.
2: <laughs> I'm sure it's nothing. Slowly this thing swims up from the depths.
5: Oh, 20,000 new followers last night. This was a relatively poor showing in the US PGA last day. Can still have a positive impact on the Even Jim followers. Furyk
1: was getting angry at the yeah. US PGA, though. But not with his Twitter followers.
5: No, it was, it was with the crowd, Owen. And it's really getting ridiculous. This uh, People shouting on golfers' uh, backswings. And all sorts of ridiculous, I mean, it used to be just getting the hole, mm. or you the man or whatever. But now, it's, now it's just all manner of uh, just idiocy. And yeah, I found, what you found yourself on in the most remarkable position, I think, that you've ever found yourself in your journalistic career, which is agreeing with Butch Herman.
1: Well, I would agree with maybe some of the points he makes golf right But when he gets on his high horse, I yeah. usually look for the remote control. In this case, like, yeah, Butch, you go for it. Kick them all out. You probably should, You pro- well, you certainly can
5: eject people from your golf course. I mean. Bit, I
2: like the same thing was happening at the Tour de France, I think, wasn't it? I. It's probably to do with social media, isn't it? Breakdown of That's society. It's <laughs> what Axe what Ferguson would say if he was in the shoes. The World society. Athletics Championships
1: are ongoing at the moment in Russia, a country that will also host the Winter Olympics and the World Cup in a few years' time, Ken, despite the, well, their... Is renewed criticism of the fact that these big sporting events are being hosted in a country which has just passed a law in the last couple of months, a ban on propaganda for non-traditional sexual relations. What does Mm. that mean exactly?
2: That means that President uh, Putin, facing declining numbers at the polls, is trying to whip up uh, support among his base by having a hate campaign against gays. Quite simply. And... Uh, what with all these sports organizations uh, having recently agreed to locate their major championships in Russia, this now places them in something of a quandary because they're all supposed to be against this type of, the type of discrimination which the Russians have recently enshrined in law. Uh, and yet, uh, at the moment, you could exempt the IAAF, maybe say this law only came in in June, World Athletics Championships are on now, you know, difficult one for them. Uh, at, that, at that sort of notice. But, you know, the IOC, who have the, the Winter Olympics there next next year, FIFA, who have the World Cup there in five years, you know, do they intend to do anything about it? Are they concerned at all about the flagrant abuse of human rights? Um, you know, are they just going to say, well, sports and politics don't mix?
1: We'll chat about that a little bit later on. And we're going to talk to Darren O'Neill, who was the captain of the Irish boxing team he did so well in the Olympic Games just over a year ago. It's been quite up and down for Darren in and out of the ring since then. We'll chat to him about all that in a little while. First up, we have got the Dublin full-back, Peter Kelly. Peter, thanks very much for talking to us after a huge disappointment on Sunday against Cork. Was it a little bit more difficult to take even than 2011 when you were underdogs against Tipperary but produced a really creditable display this time around? I guess you guys would have believed that you're going to go and win this match against Cork.
6: Yeah, I suppose in 2011 we were in fairly uncharted territory really and we didn't know whether we are good enough to be there, we kinda of just were playing on merit really, but this year I think there was a real belief in the team, especially after some of the tough games we came through this year, that we were good enough to make it to an all Ireland final. So you can only imagine the disappointment now at the moment with the team and and the management about the manner and the loss and, and um, how things went. So yeah, there's a other de- devastation really.
1: The sending off was obviously a key moment, but even aside from that the, there was a goal chance Ryan Wire had saved a few missed frees a goalkeeping mistake are there a few things nagging away at you that, that you kind of feel you might have left it behind a bit
6: yeah like I think after every loss you're always going to have the demons but I think even more so after this one I think there's a, a lot of things didn't go our way and the rubber green and things like that like the O'Dwyer chance descending off and, and a combination of the I think I was my man got the goal on Gary so I think we're both to blame for that one so um, yeah I think more so than other games you know, there's a good few demons today alright so it'll be a while to get over this one
1: Did that go, yeah it's interesting that you're t- taking some of the blame as as it, as it was uh, Peter for the goal Cause it was a funny one because Gary Maguire is, oh, I think anyone who watches Dublin Hurling you rarely see the guy actually make a mistake so I guess he just didn't realise Horgan was coming in quite so quickly maybe you didn't realise that as well
6: yeah like I, I so I've seen a clip of somewhere now I haven't watched the game back but it's, I've seen a clip of the goal and I wasn't aware Hogan was behind me and I'm aware I think, don't think Gary was aware he was coming in either so I well suppose looking back at maybe I could have protected him a bit better and he might have picked it up a bit quicker But it was just one of those things the game was in the melting pot at the time and the ball broke their way and, and the other day Gary would have cleared that Like so it was just um, just one of those things really
1: The sending off has been fairly heavily analysed at this stage and I know Anthony Daly made his feelings clear with the media without wishing to harp on about it I think he was just talking about it because he kept getting asked about it I I suppose you guys don't want to come across as sore losers or anything like that but it's fair to say there was disappointment in the dressing room afterwards about particularly the first yellow
6: yeah like I didn't see it now i only seen it in real time so I didn't didn't see anything with the first one I just thought it was a a normal shoulder I didn't even think it was Ryan who did it Um, so obviously and especially after um, I think it was only a minute and a half or something that had happened I thought it was it was unreal really that the ref would brandish brand yellow card for something as innocuous as that but I don't think he had any complaints over the second one now it was just an unfortunate collision but um, I think it was the first one that did the damage and as Anthony said the, the referee had his hand forced on the second one so it was just one of those another one of those things that went away from us um, on Sunday and all those things seemed to add up and then she Cork got the better of us
1: Did that get into players' heads? Did you start thinking that we're down to 14 here we could be struggling a little bit or, or did you personally I suppose i can going to ask for you it's hard to talk on behalf of all your teammates but did you still feel at that stage that the game was there to be won?
6: Oh definitely I think they, I think he was sent off in the 50th minute or something around that and sure Cork didn't pull away until they got the goal around 62 or 63 so I think the game was in the middle of the right until that goal really and um, sometimes when I know uh, definitely when we played Clare last year and they got a man sent off that drove them on and it definitely kind of drove us on a good bit and and um I don't think it, it had a it definitely had a big factor to play maybe towards the end. But um it definitely spurred us on for a little while anyway until they got that break with the goal. So I think the goal was as big a and they
1: only as they off us. Uh, there's been a lot of comments since about how classic a game it was. I don't know if this is ever any consolation for players, but the season that you put in as a whole was incredible. Beating Galway, beating Kilkenny in the championship, getting to a semi-final, playing your part in a what was an absolute another absolutely brilliant game, and maybe the best season ever for hurling or any of those things. Are you allowing any positive thoughts in your head at the moment?
6: Um, I'm sure in a few weeks down the line will. We'll look back and say, geez, we actually had a good season. But well, at the moment, obviously, the defeat is still raw in the system. And all you can think about is how bad a season it was, really, because after we're losing the court and what could have been and things like that. So I'm sure when we sit down now we'll come up towards um, Christmas time, and things like that, we'll say, John, well, it was a good season. You won Leinster. You won Division 1B. But um, at the moment now, the defeat is still in the system. So until then, until we get over that, yeah it's hard to see the positives now at the moment.
1: I've heard people saying that Dublin, even in advance of the game, that Dublin will never get a better chance that they're up against a young Cork team. They've already beaten the two All-Ireland finalists from last season. Would would you go along with that, that Dublin will never get a better chance to be in an All-Ireland final?
6: Absolutely not. No, be like we, I'm sure, Cork are a young team, but in terms of, they mean that by saying that this is the first year that all those young players are making advances. Like, yeah. But in, in terms of us, we have a extremely young team as well, and there's a lot of success in that young team also. Um, there's a good few 121 Lancers and things like that. So um, like it's a team that'll stick together as well. So I've no doubt that this time next year we'll, we'll still be in the fight for it and, and uh, hopefully be in the same position again.
1: There'll be at least a few weeks, maybe a few months, of wondering whether or not the manager will stay on as well with the players. Obviously, you guys convinced Daly to stay on last year. Will the team have a meeting and chat through that in the next while?
6: Um, I suppose the type of fella he is, he'll probably disappear off now and overanalyze the game till the till the cows come home. But um I'd say we'll let the dust settle for a while until um before we approach him, but it's definitely um he'll be wanted to stay anyway, considering how far he's brought us and things like that. So if um if he makes the decision that he wants to, to step aside there'll be a, a serious fight to We'll put up a serious fight to keep him on, but we'll, we'll leave that decision up to him for now.
1: Yeah, he made that point after the game, I think, that uh, one thing he would say about his future is that when he does step down, there are going to be a lot more people looking to take the job than were looking to take it when he actually took it, which is probably as as good a indication of anything as how far you guys have come in the last few years.
6: Yeah, exactly, I suppose. That's another you can, when you're When you're in the thick of it, you can't see the wood from the trees, I suppose. And, and if you were to step aside, you'd say, you'd see just how much success he's done in six years. So um, hopefully he might, might see that as a positive and, and feel he can bring the team even further rather than stepping aside now and and uh, feel he's he's done as much as he can.
1: All right. Well, Peter, well done on a really good season. Thanks very much for talking to us. Cheers. Thank you. I'm sure Gary Maguire, if he's listening, will certainly thank Peter for taking some of the, shouldering some of the responsibility mm. for that mistake. But the point he was making about Anthony Daly it's interesting, he, yeah, he'll disappear off, he'll over-analyse the hell mm. out of this, and at some point we'll have a chat to him. It, just, it does seem that Daly still has the players on site, they're hardly going to say anything different, but it, it seems very genuine with these Dublin hurlers, they know they're onto a good thing there, and they want another year out of Anthony Daly, so they can maybe win an all Ireland. Yeah, and uh, I, I know that Anthony
5: Daly has told us before, and uh, newspapers before as well, just how hard he takes defeats. and. How he, you know, one time he checked into a hotel halfway between Dublin and uh, Ennis just to not speak to anyone, stare at the wall, and try and figure out these defeats, you know, and he does take it very, very hard, and he probably does overanalyze it, but I mean, I think that's part of the, the sort of the the spirit that the guy has, um, and that the Dublin hurlers know. That that's a huge help to them. That passion that he has, that spirit that he has, it is actually a huge help to this Dublin team. And I think that they did such a brilliant job in convincing him last year that you know it's it's not the end of this team. It couldn't you know it, it, there's nothing about this Dublin team that suggests that uh, this the success that they've shown this year. Is you know a passing trend. I mean, they're they're an excellent team, and I think that if if Daly stays, they're they're actually just going to get better.
1: We're joined by Nick English and by Chrissy O'Connor to talk a bit about this. First of all, Nicky, it was a monumental game on Sunday. Clearly, it's been an amazing season. But just uh, speaking to Peter Kelly, there, he said it was harder to take than the semi-final in 2011. Although he doesn't accept that, uh, what some people are saying this was Dublin's best chance of winning might of winning it. I should say and that it might not come around again. What do you think?
3: Well, I suppose it was. Yeah, it was a monumental game, and you know, there were so many little things. It it was was so close, and the margins were so tight that little things make make a big difference. I think today it was their best chance to get into an All Ireland final. Do you know what I mean? Um, I I can see why they would be more disappointed than they were two years ago. I think they didn't really expect to beat Tipperary two years ago. Uh, They had, you know, they certainly have, you know, moved up a level. They're more experienced, and. uh, like you know, there there isn't a whole lot between any of the teams this year, so they would have seen, you know, they'd have played Cork in the league over the last couple of years, and and I'm sure, I don't think they'd have been that that really that frightened by Cork, and uh, so it proved, you know, and yeah, I suppose even after the sending off, they they did get the chances, the the frees that were missed, and um, you know the goal was a bad goal, really. You know what I mean? It was just it was it was a it was a heavy touch and. Uh, w- w- you can't afford it you just afford at that level to have a heavy touch in my view and uh, especially if you're in goals and uh, you know, that was just the little things went against them really and I just thought I thought all through Cork were a little bit slicker than on the hurling side and uh, you know, marginally so but 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 just a little bit and uh, you know, it was one of the best games you'll one of the best games you'll ever see ever in hurling and uh just added to what's been a fantastic mm-hmm. year fantastic
1: yeah Peter actually took some of the blame for that goal he said he didn't he didn't realize himself that Patrick organ was coming in, and he was a bit delayed trying to cover that and that maybe led led a little bit to the mistake by Gary Maguire but the idea now I guess for Dublin that they need to bounce back from this as they didn't do. In 2012, is are you confident that they can do that? This was this this ties in with the idea of whether or not Dublin have missed their chance here. Can that sort of defeat be psychologically damaging for a team, or is there a bit more about this Dublin setup? Do you think? Uh,
3: no, no, I, I wouldn't think that they've missed their chance at all. I, I, I think you know that. I think, it, I think that defeat actually will, you know, energize them further. And, um, he, he, you know, like I, I think that everybody with with slip slipping back into the into the. Into the mix, really, and back into the into the pack. You know, everyone everyone will think that in 2014 they can win the All Ireland, really. And like Dublin have they have as much as anyone, and they could on, on a given day any, any team can beat anyone. And I, and I think Dublin are one of those teams, and they're, they're right up there. And you know, the possibility is that they might be able to entice a few players from the football side, given given the successes of the hurlers this year. And that that, that is it, make them even more. Uh, more, more uh, dangerous in 2014.
1: Chrissy, what do you think? Will Dublin be back next year at this level?
4: Yeah, I think so. And I suppose look at the big thing they have to do now is, I, you know, break the trend that has been you know, with Dublin under Daly. You know, great year in 2009. You know, getting to Leinster final. Um, you know, poor year in 2010, beaten by Antrim. Great year in 2011, poor year last year. Great year this year. So I suppose that's the first thing they want. They, they want to break. So look at a big part of that onest whether, you know, Dalo is gonna come back in two thousand and fourteen. I know the players will want him to um I think Dalo more or less had decided at the start of the year that this was going to be his last year. Now I don't know what is you know, obviously they've Leinster champions now and, you know, really, really close to winning an on Ireland this year, so I don't know whether that's gonna, you know, be enough to get him back. So, um, I suppose look at the, if Dalo does go, I suppose it is going to change the, that dynamic a little bit. Um so I would say like yeah, definitely as Nicky said, there's you know, you the big thing about this year's championship, Bowen, is, you know, every team, like, you know, so many teams that they even were beaten early this year, like, you know, even the likes of Waterford, you know, Tip, like, you know, all those teams will feel that they're going to be better next year. And, you know, will feel that, you know, they're looking at Limerick and Clare in the semi-final, and they'll say, well, look, at, you know, surely we can get to that stage. So, um, you know, to go back to your initial question about Dublin, I think definitely, yeah, but I would, you know, I suppose really in one sense when they look at where they were, um, you know, after 50 minutes on Sunday, you know, are they going to get a better chance to win an all I don't know, but I still would say that they're definitely going to be serious contenders, and there's no guarantee, or there's no reason why they can't win an all There's been plenty of occasions and plenty of examples in the past where a team has got beaten in a semi-final, or a team has, you know, you you, you know, you feel a team has missed the boat, and that, that team has come back and, and won an all so I don't see why Dublin can't can't um, believe the same thing.
1: Nicky, something I was interested in in the run-up to this game, one strand of the analysis, was that even though a lot of people, most people I saw, were tipping Dublin up to win this match, but the point was being made, that, and Daly made it himself, I think, that no Cork team is ever going to fear a Dublin team. And also people were saying that Cork will be comfortable in Croke Park All-Ireland semi-final kind of a setting, which I thought was interesting because most of those players... Well, aside from last year, most of those players haven't achieved massive success for Cork certainly at senior level, yet it, the idea seemed to be that tradition can play a certain role here, that Cork are still one of the big three counties and that might play into their hands. I don't know if you go along with that, I suppose, as a, as a tip man, maybe you would, that there's some residual thing there that a Cork team actually should feels that, even though this is a, a hyped-up Dublin team and a very strong Dublin team, they should be going to Croke Park, winning it and getting into the All-Ireland Final. Does tradition play a part?
3: See, I, I, I think sometimes... You have to look beyond the voodoo piece of it, and and you know that that it comes down to hurling in the end. I think one, but you know, from a car I think Cork are slightly are different to Tipperary, to be honest. I don't think that I think Tipperary, if they had that attitude, would actually get too cocky and get beaten. That that would be the norm with mm-hmm. Tipperary. Whereas with Cork, I think there's just a belief that they they can compete, and uh, I think it's important as well in in Cork's. Uh, Sorry that you have Jimmy Barry Murphy because he's he's the embodiment of that of that swagger in Cork and and in a nice way, and um, it's just it's it, it's about a confidence thing. So I I would think that there was a uh, there was an element of it from from a Cork perspective that they can come up and beat anyone. But I mean they did, they didn't have that as much last year when they were in the Iron semi final against Galway. Do you know what I mean? So it's it, it's not entirely correct. You just can't put Cork jerseys on on a bad team and go up and beat anyone. You know that's not at the top three in, or, or or the traditional top three up in the uh, in an All Ireland semi final. So it's, I mean, I, I think Cork would like to believe that, and, and that's the, you know, that'll be the uh, the line that that you that you'll hear, and you know, it's the home of hurling etc. They can they can just they come up like mushrooms overnight mm-hmm. uh, scenario, but. Um, you know, I, I think they learned a lot from last year's All Ireland semi-final, and I think the defeat of, of Kilkenny really, really spurred them on and, and gave them a bit of confidence. And while they hadn't, while that team hasn't any minor and under-21 experience, I mean, in, in the Fitzgibbon Cup, they have been by far the best players over the last couple of years. And I saw, I saw the Fitzgibbon Cup pretty closely this year now. And uh, you know, the, uh, of of all the inter-county players around the place, it would be hard to argue that the Cork players not necessarily just for UCC, but Luke O'Farrell for Mary I and the guys at CIT. I mean, they were the best players in, in the competition and were so last year because UCC played CIT in the final and was nearly a full Cork uh, final. You know, so the, these guys had ex- These guys have experience and, and experience of, of success and confidence and they're they very well able to hurl. So I think there's just a bit more to it than just saying that the the tradition of Cork brought them to, to, to victory over Dublin and that they didn't believe but I'd say there is, a, there is a bit of it that they believe that they can they could win in Pro Park this year more than particularly even more than they did last year yeah,
5: Is the aura of the big three maybe more of a, an issue for the teams outside the big three Christy maybe that uh, there still is a sort of a residual uh, kind of aura around Cork teams tip, tip teams Kilkenny teams around the lower level teams or is, is that uh, in some way imagined as well?
4: I think look I think Morph that's a very, very fair point and I suppose look at the the, the best example, you know, you can look at is the, the minor semi final on Sunday. Like, you know, Waterford were by far the better team, you know, than Kilkenny, far better team than Kilkenny and um, you know, basically nearly fell over the line and you you know, you'd often feed maybe for teams like Waterford or you know that they nearly have to be ten points better than the likes of Cork or Tip or Kilkenny to maybe win by two or three. Like, you know, Kilkenny like they got ten points, it was the ten or the fifteen they got from Freeze and you know, you know, you just had this almost dread as a, as a neutral, saying, you know, are Kilkenny going to just, you know, nail Waterford here by by Waterford almost tightening up on themselves? And if you look at, we say, big All Ireland semi finals in that, you know, in the last maybe decade, we say like Clare had Cork, you know, they had them by six or seven points in the 05 semi final, and you know, they just. Um, the game got away from them, Cork got a bit, or, bit of a run on them, and you could just see Clare tighten up and, and just go into themselves a bit and, and maybe not attack the game as much. The same in 2006 when, um, you know, when Waterford, uh you know, were in a you know, really, really good win and p- great position to win the game. You know, they were five or six points up, and Cork just came back. I know no, Cork got a, a goal and a point from Colin Lockton in, in a very short space of time to kind of um, risk control back. But remember Ronan Curran saying one time that, you know, when it came down to the last... Uh, Minutes of that match, like he knew, the Cork knew they were going to win the game. They just felt that they were going to have that bit more belief, and they were going to, you know, they just had that sense about them um, that they were going to win the match. And I suppose that is, but I would that that is a factor. But I would agree with everything Mickey said there as well. Um, you know, you, you can't just do that if you haven't got the quality to do it. And I would feel on Sunday, um, you know, not taking one bit from Cork's victory because, you know, I, you know, in fairness, the game was largely being played on Cork's terms. You know, they were faster, they were slicker, their movement off the ball was, you know, the best I'd seen from Cork since the 2012 league semi-final uh, against Tip, when they cut Tip apart that day. Um, So, like, you know, but I I still think, like, you know, it's just a pity, really, the sending off happened when it did, because, you know, Dublin had really, there was a completely different momentum, there was a completely different energy about Dublin, they had outscored. Cork, five points to two. Like, you know, they, they were playing the sweeper. You know, like, if you look at even Cork's stats, like, even in before the goal, like, Horgan O'Farrell, they had been on the ball just six times. Like, and it was working. And Dublin were just, they were, even though they were playing four against six up front, you know, it was, they were kind of hanging in there, but that's all they were really doing. But, um, you know, maybe just Cork, Cork were able to just maintain the control and just push on the line. But it, it, it's, it's just a pity to send it off. I'm not saying Cork wouldn't have won the game. But, you know, that, 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 um, I suppose what you're saying there, more would really have been tested because mm-hmm. Dublin, it just looked like after sending off that Dublin's balloon was deflated, Cork's balloon was kind of inflated. And um, maybe that, that belief, you know, maybe just Cork had it more so and Dublin weren't able to counteract it having the man less.
1: Yeah, it's interesting just how much you put down to tradition on these things, guys. Nicky, I, I mean, if, I'm, if I'm a 19, 20-year-old Dublin hurler, I wouldn't give a damn that Kilkenny are supposed to be the best Hurling County and Tip and Cork are up there as well I've been beating some of these teams at underage and I've seen how the senior championship has gone this year would, you, would it be fair to say that, that players from other counties should have confidence from what's been going on particularly this season at senior level that uh, that these kind of underage titles for example that Dublin have won there's no reason that they can't be transferred to the top grade
3: No I I, I absolutely agree with that I I I think it doesn't matter where you're from if 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 you have the right backup the right and the right skill and the right, you know, the right preparation then it shouldn't it should matter what, what, what jersey you have on really you should be well capable of, of winning. And I think, you know, that's I suppose over the last number of years Kilkenny were just so strong that uh, you know you have this uh, belief built up again that, you know, Tip were the only one maybe that were able to challenge him. For a few years there there was it was, you know, it was Kilkenny and Tip that were they so were going to get to the final, we were going to, going to decide who was going to win the All-Ireland. And, and that that kind of built up a a, a tradition or a, a, a reversion to tradition that, you know, only the top three could win, or the traditional top three could win the All-Ireland. And that's been, because that's been the way really since, you know, back into the, the late 90s. You know, most most of the All-Irelands have been won by Kilkenny Cork and with Tip coming in and odd time. So, you know, that's, but that that was because Kilkenny were were exceptionally strong, and the fact that they've flipped off now, I just think gives everyone a greater belief and a greater, uh, greater, I say, greater interest in the whole championship because you know it's not it's not as predictable, and it'd be it be it be, been very hard to predict the semi final this year, and still even with Trebham left, it's hard enough to predict who's going to win the final. So it's uh, like that's I yeah I agree it does, I I don't think it and it never mattered, and you know like there are parts of. You know, where where I'm from in Tiberi was a football area. So really, you know, it would have been seen in, in where I was from that there wouldn't be any p- people that would make the Tiberi hurling team from over around my area. So and that was that was a belief
6: yeah. in
3: uh, when I was growing up. So you just it, I think you, it, it doesn't matter where you're from and you just have to have the uh, desire to, to achieve in in, in in hurling and, and no matter where you're from then you can do it
1: Did that ever get into your head when you were growing up then Nicky being told maybe you're 11, 12, 13 and even though you might have realised you were quite good at hurling you, you were told that I'm oh, not sure you won't be making the tip team
3: I'm, I'm sure it did to be honest at times you know what I mean I, I was uh, I, I didn't make the minor team in my uh, in the first year I went for it and, uh, but I, I didn't think it was anything got to do with where I was from really, to be honest I, just, <laughs> I wasn't strong enough I wasn't playing well enough that time I, I, I Probably didn't get to me really, but I, I'm sure there were people that m- maybe you could you, you can use it as an excuse if you want to as well. Do you know what I mean? And people, you know, can take the, the easy route and say, "Well, look, I'm not going to make it because I'm from where I am, or because I'm from Dublin, I'm not going to win an All Ireland uh, Senior hurling title, or I'm not going to win an All Ireland Minor hurling title." And you know, I I would argue it's possibly easier to win an All Ireland Minor hurling medal than it is to win an All Ireland Minor football medal. And uh, you know Dublin have you know in the last number of years, you know they've got very serious about their minor team, and you know they've been in a couple of minor hurling finals, and you know that, like so, like that that all adds up. You know those players they don't go away; they're they're there. Mm-hmm. If you're competitive at 18, you're going to be competitive at 21. If you're still playing, you're going to be very competitive at 23 or four. And 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 it's just all about numbers and playing and 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 playing at a higher level, and the skill level develops and and. You know, that's I, I think there was a little difference in in, in Cork's hurling. They were a little bit slicker than Dublin. But that's built up over over tens of years and decades of years. And that's that's what Dublin and and teams have to actually um aspire to. And you see the Clare team at the moment, I mean the skill levels of the Clare team at the moment are much higher than you know, the, the trad- traditional Clare teams would have back in the in the sixties and seventies. I mean they're they're fantastic.
1: Yeah. Chrissy I did just want to ask you about the refereeing issue, there seems to be Vexing quite a lot of people. Uh, Di Regan was writing on the Score website saying the authorities need to leave the game of hurling alone. There's nothing wrong with hurling. The only issue with hurling is that you have former football referees in charge of the hurling referees. It seems that Pat McEnany's role as national referees chairman, which covers both codes, is causing quite a few people uh, uh, pr- uh, some issues. Is that a problem? Does there need to be a specialised way of being in charge of the referee of the hurling referees?
4: No, and um, fairness, well, I suppose. You know, sometimes there can be a snobbish enough attitude from hurling people towards football and you know, like Pat McEnany took a lot of stick, like you know Tom Ryan was like you know, was hammering him there earlier on in the year after the the league final, he was saying, you know, look at should just go back to football and leave the hurling alone. So, you know, I, I don't think first of all I think a lot a lot of that, um, you know, McEnany stance I suppose really has come from you know, when they reviewed the the championship last year they felt there was um was it six or seven, you know, red cars that were stone stonewall red cars that should have been given that weren't given. Now I would say look at that definitely Hurlan had to look at um at certain aspects of of their play because you know, like, you know, kind of reckless use of the hurley was tolerated a little bit last year. And um, you know, I would have absolutely I would agree with that and I would say that, you know, guys, you know, should have walked and they didn't. So maybe you could say that it's kind of maybe they they have looked at it and maybe they have looked at certain aspects of the, of the physicality and I suppose look at when you when with the helmets now there maybe there was a little bit more tolerated up around the the head area and I suppose look at Henry Shefflin you know wrongly paid for for maybe referees clamping down on that on that part of um, you know that part of the game but I would say you know I would agree you don't want that kind of um, those kind of strokes in the game but like you know Ryan O'Dwyer or yellow card in the first couple of minutes on Sunday was completely wrong and, and that that's the kind of stuff I suppose that, that drives hurling people bananas and, and But
1: that's not because Pat McEnany is in charge of no, referees that,
4: like I I don't think um I suppose look at that that's the way that the the I suppose, look at that, that's the way that the, the game is governed. They're the rules that are there now. Referees are carrying out those rules. You know, I, I'm sure that Pat McEnany's point was about more so about the reckless strokes that were you know, that went unpunished last year. But um I suppose. Okay, maybe there has been a little bit of an emphasis on on how the game is refereed because you know you you would even like to look at the minor semi final on Sunday. You know, like especially the, the second yellow card that the Waterford player got. You know, really he was trying to play the ball, and I suppose he maybe just went into the Kilkenny player, and you know maybe just you know he did he did trip him or he did kind of almost you know go down his back leg. But you know he, when you're committed to that challenge, I'm sure you know Nicky Nicky knows a lot more about it than I do. But it's very hard, you know, when you when you are in a, in a you know, a big game like that, and, you are you're you know, you're trying to, you can't really pull out of a challenge, um, and I would say, like, that the first yellow card on Sunday, um, you know, it was just a shame, because, you know, a, you know, a guy like O'Dwyer, you know, Dale made the point about does his reputation precede him, and um, it didn't look like he was going to give the yellow card, and then all of a sudden, maybe a couple of seconds later, he dished out the yellow card, and, um, you know, even, you know, Darren Hughes made the point, there was an awful lot of talk about, um, you know, Sean Kavanagh's foul from the previous week, on Conor McManus but you know, maybe the you know, a more influential decision in the game was Kavanaugh's you know, he in in early on in the game, you know, he pulled Darren Hughes' arm, made it look like Darren Hughes had dragged Kavanaugh to the ground and Darren Hughes got booked and Kavanaugh kicked three points from play off him before half time and Hughes said in an interview last week that it definitely affected his mindset like that um you know maybe he was on his guard a bit like so um I know that's veering off the point a bit but I would say look at Definitely, in terms of the loose strokes that were, you know, had crept into the game last year, they needed to be eradicated. But I would say that, you know, that you have to balance that out with, um, you know, not reducing the physicality. And Ryan Edwards, Yellow Card, early on last week, it was just a shame yeah. because, you know, he didn't need to get that. It put him on, you know, subsequently got him sent off. And um, it's I- that type of stuff, I suppose, really, own, um that is, you know, has hurling people on Pat McEnany's back.
1: Yeah, I don't think it... Had Ryan O'Dwyer on his guard, though. I think I think Ryan Dwyer has one switch, and that's no, he does play
4: on the edge. Yeah. Like, but look at he—he he knows himself that you know. Look at he—he, he, um, he, you know, when you get a yellow card that early for a guy like him, you know, okay, maybe he thinks I'm going to get one yellow card in the game, so I've used that up, and uh, you know, maybe he just. Look at the switch just went, and, but um, you know he shouldn't have had to. He shouldn't have had to get that, or he should have been on one yellow no more.
1: Yeah, there was a fear. I must say even watching it as soon as it was booked. As soon as you realise why Reinard Wire getting booked, you're kind of worried that he may pick up a second yellow at some stage over the next sixty nine minutes. But Nicky, just one last question, and that's on Claire Limerick. We're going to be talking about it in a lot more detail on Thursday's show. But at this stage of the week, your early feelings on who's who's the favourite for you in that game? It's,
3: it's even difficult. Another one that's very difficult to call, really. Um, you know, Clare were very good against Galway, but I'm I'm am i I'm suspect of Galway form really or rating a team on, on Galway on and on beating Galway. Um before that Clare really I, I saw them against Wexford and they were they were poor enough really. They, like Wexford wouldn't I don't think be at this level and, and Clare you know, they they beat them well in the extra time but they struggled to put them away and I think Clare miss missed plenty of chances. You know, they're not they're not um totally reliable in front of goal to actually put away chances. Now Limerick have been out of action for four or five weeks, but to me Limerick have been the most impressive team in the championship this year. And if they bring the level of form that they showed in the Munster final to Crow Park, I could see no reason why uh, why, why they wouldn't be clear. I think even even though you yes, still you have know, the the local derby element and and the uncertainty about Limerick and clear matches to, always. And over the last few years, there's not been much in them. So again, very hard to call, but I slightly fancy I, I fancy Limerick.
7: So that's the question that's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight.
2: Second Captain's Football, available on IrishTimes.com, Second Captain's, and iTunes from 6 pm tonight. Tonight, tonight,
7: tonight, 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 tonight. 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 Liberty
4: Insurance is proud to be the first ever partner of both GAA Hurling and Camogie. To celebrate, we will give €50 to your local GAA club when you take out a Liberty Insurance motor or home policy. For more, visit libertygaa.ie. Liberty Insurance.
3: Insurance the way it should be.
1: Terms and conditions apply. Offer applies to new policies for
3: private motor or home insurance taken out between now and the 13th of October 2013. Liberty Insurance Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.
1: Quite a sensible attitude that Nicky has towards the conversation we had earlier on about tradition there. It's mm. like, yeah, it can, th- there can be an effect there and maybe it help Cork or the type of Hurling County that are probably well suited to having their dander up a little bit and getting a bit cocky going into a game. It wouldn't work for Tipperary. Interesting that he said the part of tip he comes from, he would have been told traditionally, hurlers don't come from here. So it doesn't really matter. His own career would have informed his view that, look, you have to, it doesn't matter what colour shirt is on your back, it doesn't matter where you're from necessarily, if you work hard enough and you're talented enough, you can achieve individually and achieve as a team.
5: Yeah, and I think uh, something that Christy said, it was actually in relation to the referees, um, that there, uh, the referees chat that we had there about footballers getting involved with... Uh, the refereeing of Hurling and the, uh, the officiating and Hurling. But I think it, it all kind of feeds into the one thing that where there can be a bit of a snobbish attitude that when three counties have won, like the vast, vast majority of the All-Irelands, that there is maybe a snobbish attitude that can come into play uh, when it comes to that sort of thing where, you know, the three counties expect to be there, you know, and say Cork would expect to be there and Nicky says it's a help, you know, whereas Tip expect to be there and maybe that cockiness Has been a pressure on them, a burden
1: on them in the past. Yeah,
5: which is kind of interesting. Well, Christy was talking
1: about the snobbish attitude towards referees, towards how the game is actually refereed, and I—that's undoubted that there's a snobbish attitude in hurling. And I know uh, the hurling people listening mightn't be too happy with that. But even the point around the—it has been an amazing season. It was an amazing game, but you do get this. There's almost a triumphalist tone sometimes to some of the analysis of this kind. You hear, oh, you wouldn't get that in. Liverpool against Celtic you wouldn't get that in yeah. this, that and the other it's like okay we understand that hurling people <laughs> I, we love hurling too but you don't have to compare it to yeah, other and sports you know,
5: yeah and I think that the comparison to sport just it, 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 between sports always kind of har- just harms everyone's argument really because you watch sports for different reasons and for different experiences that's the whole point of it
1: we're going to talk about this story in Russia that Ken was outlining a little bit earlier on. A huge amount of sporting events are on the way there. There's one there at the moment, the World Athletics Championships. Um, while, in the meantime, there has been a law passed just in the last couple of months, fairly unanimously in Russian Parliament, a propaganda for non-traditional sexual relations. There's a ban on that. We're going to find out a bit more about what that actually means. We're joined by David Herzenhorn of the New York Times, who's been writing about this over in Russia. David, can you flesh that out in practical terms? What does this new law actually mean?
7: Well, there's no question that this is a law that is aimed at gay men, lesbians, uh, people who are bisexual, transgender. The government will tell you that the law is intended to protect children from harmful information, and certainly we've seen laws like this in the West. But in reality, it is understood to be suppressing homosexuality and gay rights in Russia at a time when at least in some other countries uh, things are improving.
2: Why then do you think it is that Russia is introducing um, such a primitive seeming law?
7: Well again, we've seen, you know, laws like this in the, the UK somebody pointed you know, pointing out, you know, that it was only 1987 that the UK adopted an almost identical law uh... the timing for russia is quite inconvenient in part because as you mentioned russia has been bidding for and winning these major international events and of course life for gay people is a lot worse in other parts of the world in africa in parts of the muslim world where homosexuality is illegal and there's virtually no ability to live an open life uh, as a homosexual person but in russia and there's some complaint about this the standard is higher in part because of the way the country has gone about inviting the entire world in. The uh, Parts of the International Olympic Committee's charter, for instance, that talk about non-discrimination would not be relevant if Russia was not inviting the entire world to come to Sochi next February for the Winter Olympics.
1: Yeah, I guess what we're trying to get at, or just wondering, is whether these laws are popular among Russians. I know they certainly were voted in unanimously among the politicians, but... Uh, is the idea uh, a russian the, is, is a you know the common Russian person happy enough to accept these laws
7: the public opinion polls that we've seen show overwhelming support for these laws, and again that's not uh, very different from the kinds of public attitudes we've seen in other places um even in recent history. There is a lot of discussion about the close relationship that has been developing between President Vladimir Putin, who as you know is face some protest and some growing opposition, and the Russian Orthodox Church. And in that relationship, there are obviously different motivations. President Putin, many analysts think, is building a new national identity and ideology in part to shore up support where people may be growing a little bit tired of of him in power, whereas the Church obviously has its biblical uh, imperatives and opposes homosexuality for its own reasons. So in that, you see some of what's developed in regards to this legislation. The public attitudes, though, are certainly, at this point, with the laws, with the Duma, with the president, uh, there are uh, almost 90% of uh, people responding to one of the polls said they support this ban on propaganda. And again, depending on how it's presented, that makes sense. Everybody is in favor of protecting children. What exactly are the children being protected from is another question. One could also ask if this law has been counterproductive, in part because more people are talking about gay rights and gay issues in Russia now, as a result of the law, than were beforehand. There's no question about that.
2: I must say that the law sounds very vague. What exactly constitutes propaganda?
7: Well, it's really the spreading of information. You know, some of this is a translation issue, and that's how it, it translates uh, from Russian into English. Uh, it basically amounts to spreading information that promotes the ideas of non-traditional relationships i.e. not um, heterosexual relations uh, between a man and a woman but the vagueness is one of the problems uh, in russia of course justice is uh, a malleable concept and so people will say well you can be arrested for almost anything in this country depending on what the authorities want to do and that's where gay rights advocates are very concerned saying because this law is so vague It can be used to arrest someone for doing something as simple as wearing a T-shirt that might have, you know, the rainbow colors on it, or uh, two people walking down the street holding hands, perhaps crossing through a park with a playground in it. It's very hard to say how this law would be used, depending on who's enforcing it.
2: And in practice, I mean, given what we've seen from, you know, in in Russia in recent years, I mean, we've seen scenes of violence at uh, gay pride rallies and so on, the... Uh, British campaigner Peter Tatchell uh, getting his face smashed in at one of these um, at one of these rallies. Uh, it seems as though there already was an attitude among the police people who should be protecting uh, people from violence of sort of standing by and letting this happen. And you kind of have a feeling that a law like this uh, maybe gives uh, carte blanche to violent homophobes to to do what they like.
7: Well, this is one of the most striking things to me, and I'm certainly hearing from uh, folks in the Russian government and in general who say, look, the West is completely hypocritical to criticize Russia, given the treatment of gay people in the West, you know, in recent history and up until now. But one thing that you don't see in major world powers, in countries that aspire to be leaders, and certainly President Putin aspires for Russia to be a major world leader, helping to broker some of the biggest controversies happening on Earth, whether it's the Syria conflict or the concern over Iran's uh, nuclear program, you don't see the police standing by as any citizens are beaten. It just does not happen. And this is a remarkable thing, where outside the Duma, before coming to Russia, I covered the United States Congress, there was never an occasion where somebody could be standing outside the United States Capitol and protesting, demonstrating on any issue, and then gets physically attacked, and the police will stand by and not intervene. That's just a basic um, requirement of, of a civilized society to prevent your citizens from physically harming each other.
1: Yeah, The IAAF at the moment are the sports organisation tasked with organising this event and they have no issues as far as we can see with with this law or with anything going on in Russia at the moment. We're going to see some bigger organisations again, FIFA and the IOC over the next few years. Just judging historically, David, I don't suppose anything that happens there is going to have much impact on what FIFA and what the IOC are going to be doing with the World Cup and the Winter Olympics.
7: Well, it puts them in a very difficult position. In terms of Sochi, there's obviously no time to move these games. Uh, That seems like an extreme step to begin with. But, again, consider the World Cup. 2018 in Russia, 2022 in Qatar. Obviously, the rights of gays in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, are even more restricted than they are in Russia. And so it begins to be very difficult uh, to defend... Um, you know, to, to criticize Russia and at the same time have made a choice where you're operating the same event four years later, someplace where the laws are even more draconian.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's something that particularly worries Seth Blatter, the FIFA president, who famously was, uh, you know, asked about this a uh, while ago and sort of chuckled that, well, maybe, you know, uh, they should simply refrain from homosexual activities um, while the World Cup is on. So, not a, a major issue for him, but do you feel that um, if it, let's let's uh, take an imaginary world in which uh, organisations like the IOC and FIFA were to actually live up to what it says in their own charters about uh, you know being against discrimination and so on. If they were to say, uh, "I'm sorry, but the laws that have been instituted in Russia mean that." It's, it's an incompatible environment for our event to take place. And, and they were, for instance, to say, well, we're going to have to move the Winter Olympics elsewhere at short notice, but, you know, we, we can do it. What do you think the effect of that would be on Russia? I think it would be a very powerful shaming force, but might it actually have, um, might it backfire in a sense in terms of what Russians made of such a move by an international organization?
7: Sure. I mean, this is very complicated. Obviously, it's even a legal issue, right? There are, there are contracts that get signed and are put in place for these sorts of events, whether it's television rights or the construction of stadiums and other facilities that take place. I presume it would be a legal nightmare. Uh, for the IOC, you have to feel for them a little bit in the sense that this federal law was only adopted in June, at the time when the Sochi uh, so was chosen as the venue for the winter games this law did not exist and so one has to ask well why would the lawmakers and officials in russia risk provoking the international community and the organizers of these games you know six months ahead of the olympics they could have passed this law if this is what they really wanted to do for public policy you know eight months later and avoided all of this uh, that doesn't necessarily resolve the very important policy issues in this debate, but from a relations perspective with the organizers of or the events, certainly some of this could have been avoided. It's, it's very hard to say. Again, the, um, whether it's FIFA or the IOC, they certainly do have to take responsibility for the venues that they choose. They go through a long process. They like to make a big contest out of it. We all know this. We watch as uh, these... Um, you know, meetings are covered and the votes are taken and uh, various countries are making their bids and there's all sorts of celebrating when someone wins. And it's not clear that, for instance, when the location for the 2022 World Cup was decided, that gay rights were front and center. That's partly because from the side of sport, I think there's an effort to depoliticize sport and they want to stay away from the politics and pick a place that they think will be, you know, a great place for fans and uh, spectators to come and participate. But of course, that's more complicated than it seems. Yeah. Fans aren't just sitting in the stadium. They have to walk outside at some point.
2: Yeah, I wonder what would happen. Uh, and maybe the maybe the Russian authorities are a little bit nervous about the possibility of this. At the World Athletics Championships over the next few days, if one of the athletes, I'm not saying this is likely to happen, I'm just saying if it, if it was to happen, was to, was to make some kind of a protest in the stadium, um... I don't know how exactly it could be done, but to, to make some kind of a stand on this issue, it would strike me that if they were to do that, they would then be in breach of the law. Um, it would certainly be, it would certainly qualify as propaganda, I suppose. It was beamed around the world on live television. If somebody was to do that, what do you think the response of the authorities would be when, when challenged sort of before the eyes of the world? Would they, would they enforce their law? Would they, would they deport um, an athlete who tried something like that?
7: It will be very interesting, and it's even more complicated you know, because my colleagues in the Sports Department of the New York Times have written about how the Olympics Committee has its own regulations prohibiting athletes from making political statements of any kind. So not only would a, an athlete who is carrying, say, a, a gay pride flag along with their national flag in the Olympic Stadium be in violation potentially of the Russian propaganda law. They would also be in violation of Olympic rules and subject to sanctions on the side of the Olympics. And we could see a very interesting situation where Russia is turning around to the Olympics officials and saying, hey, you need to enforce your regulations that keep politics out of the stadium, out of the arena. We don't have to come in there and arrest anyone because you've got to put a stop to this. And Will athletes be subject to disqualification if they make that kind of a statement? Everybody is in a very difficult situation here. I don't think the Russian authorities want to be seen arresting athletes on international television because they happen to be wearing a, a certain item or carrying a, a flag uh, to show their solidarity with, um, with gay rights. At the same time, you could see some very uncomfortable conversations happening in the days and weeks uh, leading up to these games where the Russian government is saying, you know, we'll do our part, but what about your part?
1: Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. David Herzenhorn of the New York Times, thanks very much for talking to us today.
7: Great to be with you.
1: David's been writing about this subject over in Moscow. Ken, we've been talking about the IOC and FIFA. I really don't think they have shown in the past that they're going to necessarily make a stand on this, Ken. I mean, you go back as far as you want, maybe 1936. The Olympics mm. were on in Munich in that year, or mm. on in Berlin, I should say. Berlin, yeah. Um, at a time when, well, let's just say things were starting to become clear about Adolf Hitler's yeah um, plans.
2: And, uh, and at the time, it was fine for people to to give you know the athletes all to give Nazi salutes and so on and so forth. So political um, demonstrations weren't. Totally out for the IOC at that time. I mean, they—they, they, I suppose, could say, "Well, we actually awarded the Olympics to Germany in 1931, and then it was five years later." Um, you know, but still, the fact was that, that the Nuremberg Laws were in 1935. So there was, it was—it was clearly not a good place uh, for the Olympics to be, if the Olympic spirit is meant to sort of represent shared human ideals. This was not really a good thing for them to have done. And really, I think it, sh- it should have disgraced them. I mean, the following Olympics, the 1940 Olympics, which didn't take place because of the war, were supposed to be in, where do you think? Obviously, Tokyo. <laughs> Obviously, they were in Tokyo. Really, um, I suppose fascist Rome was was the only other contender as, as far as they were concerned. Um, but the IOC managed to get off the hook because of Jesse Owens. Because Jesse Owens, that, When when people think of 1936, they don't think... What was the IOC doing?
0: Closing up to the the Nazi
2: regime. They think of there's Jesse Owens sticking it to Hitler. That's the power of the Olympic ideal, you know. So they completely get away with it. It's it's like 1968 as well. It struck me that this, if an athlete was to do was was to make some kind of a protest along these lines, the the thing that it's actually most closely equivalent to, or would be most closely equivalent to, would be the John Carlos Black Power salute in 1968, which of course the IOC punished him for you know, grinding him uh, beneath their heel. Well, they ran him out of town. <laughs> they absolutely ran him out of town, you know, for, for, uh, for this political protest, which, in retrospect, everyone remembers as a glorious moment of Olympic history. So again, they get off the hook. So maybe they just think, well, history shows that we don't really need to worry. We can roll up to any uh, repressive and brutal regime, put on our show, and if something happens, uh, and, so uh, you know, uh, hopefully what will happen is one of the athletes we'll do something which everybody will remember for the right reasons uh, and they won't remember the... Thereby
5: by furthering the Olympic ideal while we continue to try and tarnish it. I mean, it's, it's very, very strange uh, and it's a very uh, well-made point, Ken. Time for this now. That's
1: right, you're a real it. Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I
5: left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes yeah. and the puchin. Huh?
2: And the puchin.
1: Oh, yeah, there
2: you go. <laughs> Bone and bread, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a little place called Navin. Do
1: you think Jay Leno had ever heard of Puchin? No. Before Pierce Brosnan's introduction? No, no, he could there. have said literally
5: anything there. Pucin is, you know, a 3 Of course,
1: iron sweaters, yeah, of course.
5: Well, no, I mean, I, I think in fairness, Puchin is a little bit obscure for the American audience, but that's Pierce Brosnan. He is a true Irishman. Yeah. And uh, after a week off, uh, I'm proud to announce that Pierce Brosnan's Emigrant Shoutouts is very much back. And I begin with an email uh, which tells tale of P. Bezos' past... Howie lads I'm sure we can all agree That in the new show One segment has stood Head and shoulders Above all the others To enter the pantheon Of Irish broadcasting Hashtag p Is now not so much A whimsical segment Of a sports show More a cultural phenomenon And an important Social commentary So the uh, ass kissing Out of the way He continues I'm, I'm emailing With one hashtag p Bezel Particularly in mind I'm sure you recall The week Murph Broke from normality And gave a shout out To three lads Making subway sandwiches In Ocean City On a J1 We all remember oh, yeah. While the three lads Are mates of mine I have to say the buzz created by their 15 minutes of fame catapulted them into a sort of local celebrity status over in Maryland. Men wanted to be them, and women wanted to be with them. But now the summer is drawing to a close, the lads will soon toast their last footlong uh, and set sail for those fair shores once again. Before they do, two of the lads, John and Aina, will be turning 21. Due to their strict adherence to American law, they have not let a sip of alcohol pass their lips all summer, so the next week will be a big one for them. The only thing which could improve it for them would further would be a shout out from Murph and Pierce to mark the occasion. I know it's unconventional I don't have a photo for you Of the lads holding the magic sign But I think the listeners And yourself Would appreciate the closer, closure Which, which uh, this would bring uh, So sh- sure Do your best lads Yours in sport Philip Green So uh, Philip Happy to uh, uh, to accede to your request mm. there and top class ass kissing as I said in the first paragraph there plenty of hashtag pbezo signs being sent in to me now on it truly is a global craze Benny Shield was watching the super rugby final in the Empire Bar in Auckland, New Zealand he calls it a pebzo request in his email but in fairness he did spell it right in the sign so fair is fair uh, some ripped young men of Ireland posed by Sydney Opera House but the testosterone cours- coursing through their veins Interfered with their cranial workings, and they forgot to include their names in the email. But uh, keep busting those abs, lads. Uh, we got a Pibeso sign uh, photo from Death Road Hold in on Bolivia. A
1: what those people sent you p without their names? Without their names, yeah.
5: But they're really ripped They look really good In tight
1: t-shirts Unidentified photos. ripped So what,
5: what, can I, what can I say We got a P Bezos Signed photo from Death Road in Bolivia That we tweeted last week But I know that's Of minimal importance Until we mention their names So Tim O'Sullivan And Damien Flynn Congratulations I like that P Bezos Have now become so sought after That I'm getting regular requests For clarification As to the exact rules <laughs> As to who uh, Qualifies for P Bezos So uh, Jennifer Hoole And her fiancé John Have been in touch We're hoping that we're eligible For a hashtag P Bezos As we live in Belfast we believe that you should firmly grasp the nettle of whether those in the north are eligible for a hashtag p and issue a definitive statement on the matter, as there are a lot of us southerners living up here. Uh, well, if you want an answer, I'm going to have to say that anyone living within an, uh, an Irish commute of Boards Mill and County Mead cannot be eligible for a P-Bezil. And if that upsets a few people across the political spe- spectrum, then so be it. If, it's on, if you're on the island of Ireland, after all, if you want a P-Bezil...
3: Then maybe you shouldn't be living here!
5: So if you want to get in touch and get a hashtag p shout-out for yourself, then why don't you email us at editor at secondcaptains.com and I, will, I am showing major preference to those people who send in a photograph of them holding a hashtag P-bezzle sign from uh, around the
1: world. Yeah, and also preference for people who put their names down. Yeah, exactly. Or if, well, you could get in there either way, but just for your own... Yeah, I mean, listen, if you've got extraordinary muscle muscle tone in your upper uh, in body, oh, well, then that so. should be fine. We're about to talk to one of Ireland's boxing Olympians from last year, who's had a strange kind of a year since. There's a lot of people writing in the last few weeks about the anniversary of the Olympics and what sort of legacy there is for teams and individuals and even countries in the case of the UK. We don't want to go too far down that road, but I do think it's kind of interesting that we... Laud these people for a few weeks, and criticize them when they don't do particularly well. But particularly in the case of the boxing, it's generally good news stories, and then they do get somewhat forgotten about, and not as many people seem to care that much what happens to them after the Olympic games.
2: Yeah, uh, it's true. I mean, and it's 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 the problem, I suppose, that Olympic sports, with with certain exceptions. I mean, apart from the big professional sports like football, which is not an Olympic sport, but you know, not yeah, really, don't really think of it that way. Um, it's it's one of the problems that they have is that. There isn't necessarily a really good living to be made, even for the really elite performers in the sport. Um, you know, reading recently this uh, a new book um, by David Epstein, of Sports Illustrated. He, you know, he he was talking about Usain Bolt. We're going to be talking to David um, on the program on Thursday, uh, making the point about Usain Bolt that one of the reasons why Usain Bolt is the you know world champion, uh, world record holder, hundred meter sprinter is that he was born in Jamaica. And in no other country on earth would an athlete like Usain Bolt, well, maybe the Bahamas, and maybe Trinidad, and a couple of other countries in that region, but in every other country he would be playing uh, football. If he, if he was born in America, he'd be playing American football. Yeah. He'd be playing uh, basketball, possibly. He, he might be playing soccer. No way would an athlete like this end up doing uh, track. Uh, and Epstein make, making the point, a former track athlete himself, that... There are guys in that 100 metres final in London last year who would have got to the Olympic final who are not able to make a really good living out of the sport. You would think these are the top stars in the world in their sport. And still, really, of all those guys, it's only Usain Bolt. And the rest of them may... may you know, it may surprise you to hear that they're living almost student lifestyles.
1: When Darren O'Neill qualified for the Olympics in late 2011, things were looking really good for him because he did have a job away from the boxing as well as the grant money that he would have gotten there. He decided to take a break though from his teaching job to focus on London, captained the Irish team there. Things have been pretty tough all round since returning. Darren, thanks very much for chatting to us on the show. Uh, it's been a kind of an up and down year for
0: you. Yeah, well, as you say, it's been up and down. Um, I suppose. You know, obviously everyone kinda of struggles a little bit getting back from the Olympics but uh you know, it was great I suppose the support we got for a few weeks but uh yeah coming back down dirt then was quite difficult and I suppose I once I got back training I was I was glad to get back into routine but unfortunately uh, a shoulder injury came up and it has been uh you know it just played evidence on me since. It's it hampered my I suppose preparation for national championships. Um, you know, there was there was what six, seven months there between the Olympics and the Nationals where I did not, I didn't have a single fight. Um, so that hampered my, I suppose, preparations. And then uh, you know I was, I was beaten on a countback in the first fight I had back. So you know to Jason Quigley who went on and won the the gold at the European. So I suppose I felt a little bit hard done by there. If I, you know, I felt if I had uh, even one round preparation in before me, I would have won the, I would won the Nationals easily. And, and I suppose you know it would be me on top of that podium. But. Uh, I mean, yeah, so I've, uh, that was a setback, and I suppose it set me back sports-wise for the year. Um, but then, I suppose, other aspects, obviously I was struggling to find work. Um, you know, I, I felt very, very let down by the principal where I was. He, uh, you know, said that he'd love to have me back at the out of CV, which I did. And, uh, you know, then he didn't even give me an interview for one of four positions going, so it was a bit let down. Um so can you so, just yeah.
1: explain that, Darren? Sorry, because uh, you you are a teacher. You had taken well, my understanding, having spoken to you before, was that you once you qualified for the Olympic Games, you then took a career break. The idea was you'd be going back in, into your teaching role after the Olympics.
0: Yeah, well, that's uh, that's the way it stood. You see, the position I had was a temporary position, meaning that it has to be re- kind of renewed every year. Um, but there was jobs going, so I technically I uh, suppose considering it was a career break, I should have been taken back, but. Um, I've been trying to deal with my injuries, and uh, I've been getting back training. You know, i have looking into different things, so I've been ke- trying to keep myself active. You know, um, the hard part, I suppose, is, is the monotony of it. But uh, look, I mean, things are are on the rise again. I've, I got a job there last week, um, and you know, as I say, I'm back training. So hopefully, this injury will will uh, will settle. Um, I've been getting work on it, so hopefully, it'll it'll settle enough that I'll be able to get back into. I suppose back to where I where I should be performance wise.
1: Yeah, well great news on the job front. First of all, that's in teaching, is it?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um I've I'm uh, gonna be teaching out in Turlestown in a junior infants classroom out there in Powers Powerstown Educate Together. So it's uh you know, it's great and I'm looking forward to getting back into the classroom. I love working with kids, you know. Um that you get some great great fun out of them. but uh, you know it's great that you can have an influence on them as well and hopefully we'll have a few more uh getting into sport and boxing tr- because of it
1: yeah i remember you talking before about how delighted the kids were that you they had an olympian teaching them which i'm sure was great for them but just uh, on the your mindset when you found out that you weren't going to be getting um you said you weren't even interviewed for the jobs. is that right
0: yeah yeah um yeah mindset i don't know i was a bit baffled to be honest um You know, I suppose it was publicly said that they'd love to have me back. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was a bit very insulted by that, I suppose. Um, But look, as I say, I don't want those type of people, uh, I suppose, in my circles, if that's the way they're going to be. So move on to better or bigger and better things, you know. Darren, you
1: headed over to London as an Olympian, as uh, you would have thought you were going to be coming back into your teaching job. A few months after that, then, as you describe, you don't have the job. And you're injured and you're out of the ring. Were you quite down about things?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I suppose your mood's changing an awful lot. But yeah, it's been, it's been a very tough year to be honest with you. You know, um, and I suppose in performance-wise, I need to be working. Um, I need that external distraction. And when I didn't have either of them this year, you know, I was kind of was down the dumps. At, at certain stages, you'd be you'd be nearly depressed, you know, because I'm used to the routine. I'm used to being kept busy. You know, I was used to being training and working, and and for stages throughout the year, I had neither, so it was very very difficult to deal with. But uh, you know, you have to I suppose surround yourself with good people, and you know, I, I think uh, my family, home, girlfriend, the whole lot, you know, been very very supportive um, and keeping me on track. And you know, it's I suppose it's, it's about setting yourself goals. So you know, I wanted to get back working, and I want to get back training, and you know, thankfully, I'm I'm halfway there anyway. i the job, uh, I suppose. Uh, In place, and I'm I'm back training the last few weeks, so you know I'm I'm hoping this injury will uh will settle and that I'll be able to get back, you know, into into back for or back into my uh, top form.
1: Were you able to survive and just kind of day to day living wise with the grant money that you're on?
0: Yeah, you know, uh, thankfully I was on uh, I was on the world class funding this year. I dropped down from my podium to the world class. but you know, unfortunately next year I'll be dropping um I'll be dropping again so if if I get anything at all. So it's uh you know, the new system is kind of difficult because it used to be over a two year cycle, um you know, and now we are down to one year, so it's it's very, very difficult, you know. You, you can't have an an off season or an injury as maybe, you know, the case with me. And next thing you're gone, you know. But uh look I mean the sports council have been great to me for years, so I can't uh, I can't complain but you know, it's going to be very difficult to know. I suppose over the coming months, um, and I suppose it, it puts you under quite a lot of pressure as well. You know, unwanted pressure that you, that you I suppose have to get results, and uh, I suppose it deters from your performance sometimes uh, when you start thinking about external things. You know.
1: Yeah, you said at the very start that there was you know you were getting plenty of attention in the few weeks after coming back, as were all of our boxers who did so well over there. The I, I guess. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was that you would think that qualifying for the Olympic Games and going over and you were captain of the team, it should help all aspects of your life, really. But in fact, it seems to have, it certainly seems to have hindered your work life and that you gave up um, or you went on your career break. It hasn't worked out for you since you came back. Would you have thought that maybe even aside from the situation with the school that you were in, that you might have been getting a bit more support from somewhere else? I don't know where exactly, but I just would have thought that there should be maybe a bit of a helping hand there.
0: Yeah, to be honest, I suppose I thought the same thing. Um, I qualified 4th of October 2011, and I said to myself, Grand, i you going to be set up here? Um, you know, I said, I'll be able to take the the break for a few months out of school. I could have stayed teaching, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't have been fair on the kids, nor would it have been fair on me, So, or the school, so I was trying to do the right thing um, by everyone. But I said to myself, yeah, I'll come back from the Olympics, it'll be fine, I'll, I'll, I'll get a job, you know. Um, um, you know, we were back, I suppose, this day last year, but... Ideally, I didn't want to start until maybe you know at the end of September, or i just have another week or two off because obviously it's it's a massive uh, come down from the Olympics, and it would have been very very difficult to be in a state of mind to go back into the classroom immediately. But uh, I suppose you know I was looking for an extra week or two, but as it turned out, that would have been ideally, or that would have been the the perfect case for uh, the school where I was. But anyway, I, you know I presume I would have I would have got a job, or as you say yourself, you know there would have been opportunities for me elsewhere, whether it be. Know represent or as a rep or, or something like that, but uh, you know where I don't know, but this was not materialized. So you know you have to you have to deal with these things.
1: Is there an issue there? that maybe needs to be addressed even f- for the next Olympic Games or beforehand in the sense that even Katie Taylor has, has only appeared really intermittently and, and those are kind of on uh, Brian Peters' run shows. There hasn't been a huge amount in terms of uh, uh, the representing Ireland or fighting in an amateur level in that sense. And we all saw how famous Katie was for a couple of weeks during the summer last year. Is, is there, I don't know, is an issue within Irish boxing that you guys aren't being maybe promoted or handled in the right way?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I don't know how it could be handled. Um, you know, I, I think uh, the GA players are more uh, more recognised in, in Ireland than we are. Um, so it's kind of it's it's a difficult situation, to, I suppose, to diagnose. Obviously, you know, the boxer should be a little bit or should be noted a bit more, but. I suppose the ABA can, you know, maybe maybe they have this they can step up on, but I suppose a lot of it comes down to the media. You know, we, if we're not in the media, you're not seeing. you simple as, it's it's as simple as that. You know, um, you know, and it's those who are in the media day and day out that are that are going to be getting the benefits of uh, you know corporate uh, backing and 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 so you know,
1: yeah. Fair enough. Just uh, last word, and that's on the situation in the ring, Darren. The, you mentioned that you lost to Jason Quigley. I know there are box-offs coming up this weekend. You've had to move up a weight division there. Is that the situation?
0: Yeah, they won't give me a box-off at 75 with Jason, unfortunately. Um, the dean because he got his medal at the Europeans, that he's pre-selected for the Worlds. Um, so the they, they have entered me at the 81 uh, kg bracket. Now, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. There's four of us entered, as far as I know. They're, uh, too, Mark, going to going Gonta, so um, I could possibly be boxing this weekend in a semi, in a so called semi final, and then the winner should box the national champion who would be Joe Ward. Um, but Joe is injured, so I think um, I don't think it'll make any difference. I think they're just going to, you know, all other all the other champions will have to box off, all right. But I think Joe will just be given the benefit of the doubt. Um, so I'm kind of sitting on the sidelines for the rest of the year. Um, you know, I'll, I'll keep plugging away just in case Joe's not ready. Um, but you know, I suppose I'm looking to to uh, get back a little bit of form, get one or two fights under my belt, and to uh, and to uh, you know take back my title next year. And uh, you know, I'm quite confident I could do so easily enough.
1: Yeah, just the fact that you're back fighting and the fact that you're back working, are you in a better place than you would have been six or eight months ago?
0: Oh, completely. Yeah. Um. You know, I think the fact now that I'll be back working will will uh will benefit me big time i think you know I, I stopped uh in i suppose january of 2012 and uh from then on my form dropped you know right through for the right through till now you know i haven't been anywhere near the form i had been for for the i suppose previous year or two you know even back to when i qualified um so you know i think i need that uh, we've we've learned that in the past but uh you know i would have been i suppose we had to take the chance for the olympics that i would uh you know Going to full time, I suppose uh, squad because you know if you'd be looking back in years to come and say, well, what if? But uh, yeah, tr- I mean, throughout the past, we have not we've noted that I perform better when I'm working, and uh, you know now I'm back working and please God the the injuries uh, you know subside enough so that I can get a a few decent weeks of training and a few decent fights under my belt and I will be very, very confident that I will I won't say breeze to the, the national championships but that I will uh, retain my title you know, or I suppose regain my title yeah. at this stage um, you know, um, uh, not on my ease but you know, comfortably enough
1: Okay, Darren, good to hear the confidence is up and thanks very much for chatting to us on the show
0: today. Yeah, no problem at all Thanks.
1: That's a interesting peek into the mind of an elite sports person, a lot of whom think that all they should be focusing on is their sport. They need to be 100% full-time. They'll have to just work off whatever grant money they can get or whatever sponsorship they can get, and that's it. That's how they perform, and there's a certain logic to that, especially if you put in the serious hours to get to the latter rounds of mm. an Olympics and to get to the very top of your sport. Darren says it's different for me. I need to be really busy all the time working and, fighting my bo- and concentrating my boxing. I've always performed better in the ring when I'm working outside the ring. So apart from actually the making a living part, it's interesting that it works that way for him, that he needs to be kind of working full-time in order to be able to train full-time, perform full-time in his, in his sport. Yeah, Sounds like a guy who likes to be kept busy, Darren O'Neill. Yeah, well, I think that uh, there is a work-life balance
5: to be struck for everyone. Uh, and I think that if you do one thing and that what used to be your hobby becomes your job and then it totally consumes you. I mean, I, it does sound weird, but at the same time, the way Darren explains it, it kind of makes a little bit of sense as well that if you're thinking about nothing but the one thing that you've always thought about even as a kid then that maybe that leads to nearly an unhealthy So you can, you
1: can keep the passion for something better a little bit if it is still not your only focus maybe Yeah, I think that there might be a bit of sense to that You know, Coming up at 6 o'clock this evening
0: That's Yeah <laughs> They have asked for that, really
1: yeah, You can laugh I the to walk up
7: I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You well, don't know
3: what you're talking about. What well, yeah. you want? Know, I'd like to, like to stay alive for I'd
2: say it to you,
1: but I'd
3: say it to you now. Mean, I'm, I'm
2: down to Anfield, and we'll see them. what you're
1: doing down here, you show me, man. Second captain's football, Ken. Coming up a little bit later on this Tuesday.
2: Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about the Ireland game coming up on Wednesday. We'll talk a bit about some of the transfers that are not happening. We're not going to be doing this for much longer, Owen talking about transfers, but there's several big transfers about poised to go. Maybe just needs one of them to go and then they're all going to happen. But the other thing that we're going to have is an interview with David Peace, uh, who is the author of, uh, well, most recently, Red or Dead, which is a new novel based uh, on the life of Bill Shankly. David Peace was the author of The Damned United. Yeah,
1: one of the best sports books in recent years.
2: Yeah, um, which was obviously about uh, kind of an imagining of what was going through Brian Clough's head during his 44 days at Leeds United? This is um, this is the story of Bill Shankly at Liverpool and Bill Shankly after Liverpool, and uh, a very good book in my opinion. And we're going to talk to David uh, in the football show coming up in an narrative
1: We haven't had a chance to mention the Liverpool Celtic game from the weekend. It was only friendly, so there's no point in talking about what actually happened on the field. But since that match, there have been there has been this kind of narrative of loads of people turning out to go and see two teams coming over from England. A lot more than go to most one Ireland. Sc- one of them from Scotland. Oh, <laughs> one of them is indeed from Scotland, Ken. Uh, a lot of whom, a lot of these supporters don't come out even to see Ireland matches these days. Yeah. And certainly don't come out to see League of Ireland games.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty annoying, I suppose, for League of Ireland fans. Is it, though, necessarily? I don't know. Is there an exclusivity in League of Ireland? Real football, real fans, was the is the advertising slogan. I think it was played even at half time in the Aviva Stadium, which was full then of what I suppose
5: are not real, real fans.
2: I, I mean, I, I guess so. And uh, I mean, I don't know if anyone necessarily noticed the incongruity of that. But um, if there's nothing if, to the point, if, if too saying? many people went to League of Ireland matches. Would that dilute the real fan quotient? Well, yeah,
5: but maybe it would improve the game, and surely League of Ireland fans would then be absolutely delighted because it's, it's,
1: well, not all of them. I don't think so. I think some electricity league fans, we should probably call them, are happy enough that part of the part of the joy they take from watching these teams is they know it's a small group of people. It's a small family essentially that you're involved in there, and if you get a load of bandwagon jumpers. Getting involved. Not real fans. Maybe you wouldn't be overly. Maybe
2: just the kind of cachet of belonging to what's almost the secret society. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure that League of Ireland fans want the game, the club game in this country to thrive, but I don't think it's a question just of blaming the people. I mean, the fact is, if you're, if people aren't turning, you've up,
5: experienced a bit of this on Twitter that people have, people are kind of saying to you, they were saying that, you know, this is a disgrace that fifty-one thousand people showed up to watch Liverpool Celtic and they don't go. See League of Ireland games.
2: Yeah, but you get—I mean you gotta ask the question, why is that happening? I mean, there's clearly an appetite for the game in this country and there's people who'll go and watch the games. We can see that. That's that's shown from mm-hmm. the from the game on Saturday. Now I suppose you could sit there you could sit back and say, Well, you know, look at all these people and, and blame cultural imperialism and brainwashing and you know, various other things gone wrong in the brains of all those people turning up to watch a, a friendly match between Liverpool and Celtic. Or you could ask, why are these people not going to the League of World matches? Is there anything that we can do? Why are they not going to the national team matches? Is there anything we can do there? I think we've been through the national team question on many occasions. And, you know, I think everyone knows uh, why maybe the, the games have become less attractive yeah. in recent years. It's not necessarily rocket science. The market is, is there, but maybe at the moment the product isn't there.
5: Yeah, and I, I, I think that it's 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 only natural that there are 62,000 people at Dublin and Cork in the Ireland hurling semi-final on Sunday. Mm. And there will be, you know, not half that at the Cork Club hurling final uh, later this year. I mean, it's only natural. If the quality is not as good in one area as in the other, people will follow the quality. And that's just,
1: that's just it. Follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. You can check us out at facebook.com forward slash second captains. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken.
2: Thank you, and Thank you, Kira. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks very thanks much for
1: listening. We'll have second half of football out a little bit later today.
3: How's it going? the second time it's gone off. never got home. They never got home. They never got home. Those guys.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.